why do we why do we sing every week? Isn't that interesting that we sing every week at church? So the scriptures aren't just a matter of reading and hearing preaching. It's not philosophical points to be discussed and propositions, but it's also singing. Singing is an important part of the Christian faith. So we don't just have worship leaders up here just to make it a cool presentation, but it's a part of our faith. Matter of fact, we're going to look at a book here in the Bible, the book of Psalms, which I know Pastor Scott has taught you a lot about already. And it's a book full of songs because God prioritizes the felt experience. Cognitive understanding of him is great, but you know what he's saying with the Psalms? He's saying, I want you to feel me as well. So your heart and your mind are all aspects that God wants to reach you with. And I have a little clip prepared of a song that I tend to feel. I don't know if you feel it's kind of old school, but we're going to play it for a second, and I'm going to use that to introduce the Psalms a little bit more. Sing if you want to. That's good. Thank you. Sam Cook, a change gone come. All right. So the reason I want you to hear this clip today is because, first of all, that song, I don't know about you, but I just feel that song. It just soaks into my bones. If I listen to that in the car with the radio turned up, I used to have a 66 Mustang in high school, listen to the oldies, and I just used to feel that song. But the valuable thing I want to draw out here is this, that Sam Cooke is bringing you into experience that you don't know anything about or you may not know anything about. For instance, I wasn't a... I wasn't that old when he first sang that song. I don't even know if I was alive yet. I was born in 76, so I'm not sure exactly when. But I wasn't probably alive when he sang that song. I think that was Civil Rights era that he's singing that. And uh, although my father is black, I experience white privilege. So I call myself an undercover brother. So <laughs> I don't know. So I don't know what it feels like to be a black man in the Civil Rights era. But you know what Sam Cooke does? He brings us into that experience. I was born by the river in a little tent. And just like the river, I've been running ever since. And he talks about going to the movies and, and trying to go to the restaurants, but signs being posted. You're not welcome. You're not, in, you're not allowed access here. And what he's doing, us, doing to us here is he's teaching us what it feels like to be a black man in America, a black person in America, especially during the civil rights era, but it still extends to today, as I know living in St. Louis just a few uh, months ago. And what I want to do with the parallel with the Psalms here is say this. The psalmist, what the psalmist does is brings you into an experience that may not be feeling extremely relevant to you at the moment. So what the Psalms do is they tutor us how to experience life as a community together. They teach us how to joy together. They teach us how to lament together. They teach us how to rejoice. They teach us how to cry. 
So you may be singing a psalm of lament, and you may think, I just got a car yesterday. I'm not feeling that lamentful. But it's important to understand how to mourn with the community. That's what the people of God are. It's not an individualistic thing. So the psalms teach us how to live as a community of God's people. And we're going to look at a particular psalm today, Psalm 68, uh, which has really become one of my favorites. Uh, there's a quote from an from a Old Testament theologian I happen to know personally, and he has a beautiful uh, description of the psalms and uh, the importance of them today. He says, the book of Psalms is God's prescription for a complacent church because through it he reveals how great, wonderful, magnificent, wise, and utterly awe-inspiring he is. So we need the Psalms today for many reasons. Psalm 68 in particular, it's been described as a victory reign of the divine warrior. Victory reign of the divine warrior. And in this Psalm if we had time to read through it all, you're going to see that God is just this mighty, powerful, warring God. God is described as defeating the Gentile nations who love war. And this feels a little counterintuitive to our Western sensibilities. A warring God? What kind of, what kind of God is this that you're trying to bring to me? Well, for anyone that's been oppressed... If you have ever heard the story of a child soldier, if you have ever been outside of the insulation of our, our comfortable society here, you'll see that there's people in desperate situations, and we know it happens in our own city, and we need a warring God to deliver us from the evil one, from those who love war, from those who love murder, from those who love killing, from those who violently oppose peace, love, and justice. We really need a warring God. But he's a different type of warrior. As we're going to see, we're just going to read the first six, uh, actually we're going to do five verses, the first five verses of Psalm 68. Please read along with me if you'd like to. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the desert. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless. And protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. We thank you for your word that shows you as merciful and mighty. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take delight in you in his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing, with loud singing. Father, we ask that you would teach us what it means that you are a father to the fatherless. Put your heart in your people this morning as I proclaim the word. Guard my mouth that I wouldn't speak outside of what you are speaking. 
In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. So, the man I'm about to tell you about isn't a warrior, but he's a pretty significant man. He was pretty accomplished. And I had the privilege of meeting him when I was 14 years old. And uh, his legacy always stays with me. I mean, the guy had a church. He was a pastor. His church was a stately church down the street from the Capitol building. He was uh, known to do so much for the community. He did a lot of outreach. I look him up once in a while online, and I see him meeting with senators, really fought for life, uh, just a, a real hero in his community. The only problem was, is this man had one weakness, and that was he neglected his own children. And the man I'm telling you about is actually my father. I've met him one time in my life, and somewhere in America he's preaching a sermon right now, yet he's never connected with his own son. He's never connected with me. I don't bring this up to you so that we can like point the finger at him and look how bad he is, but rather to draw out the fact that we all have this tendency to be awesome, to be dominant, to be warriors of a sort, who go out and who accomplish, who succeed, who prevail, but forget the most important things, our children. So it's really important as the people of God to keep in mind the most humblest among us, our, our very children, which is, I think, part of our priority here at uh, New Valley is having our children here every fifth Sunday. They're an important part of the community. They're not to be neglected or pushed to the side. They're to be cared for. They're to be nurtured. Sermon on the Mount talks to us about how important it is for us to prioritize those who society marginalizes. Fatherlessness is an epidemic in the world today. Here's a couple statistics that I found online. 71% of high school dropouts are fatherless. 71% of pregnant teenagers are fatherless. 85% of children with behavior disorders are fatherless. 90% of homeless and runaways are reportedly fatherless. 63% of youth suicides, 85% of youth in prison all came from fatherless homes. I remember as a teacher, I was a teacher for seven years before seminary, and in my classroom I worked with troubled youth, but I often would do a little survey as part of my sociological class experiment that day, and I'd say, how many of you have fathers? And it would typically be 90% of my students that did not have fathers. It was very common for 90% of my students, if not 100% of them, to be without fatherless without fathers. So it's an epidemic. And I, myself, as you have just heard, am part of this statistic. Um, I remember one day in class uh, sharing with my students that I had African-American heritage. And one of my students from the south side of Chicago, streetwise Katie, said, no, nah, Mr. Shea, you ain't black. <laughs> and I said, well, actually, young man, I am. <laughs> And he said, no, no, no. So this was his litmus test. He said, okay, Mr. Shea, who is your father? Isn't that interesting that he asked me that? And I said, you know, I'm, I actually don't know my father. He said, oh, you black. <laughs> and that's so sad. Isn't that? It's funny, but it's sad that that was how he determined I was truly black. He accepted me as black with this light skin color, 
so high yellow you can't see it. But he accepted the fact that my father wasn't in the picture. That made me black. So I want us to keep in mind the black community today as we hear about the father and the fatherless. The main point I want you to get from this sermon is this. Because God loves orphans, we must save the fatherless. As the church, because God loves orphans, we must save the fatherless. It's not a civil rights thing. It's not a movement. It's not benevolence. It's just part of who the people of God are. So there's two things I want us to focus on today. It's just a two-point sermon, all right? Scott said I can't go over three hours, so I'm limiting it, all right? Just... <laughs> Some call it a Texas sermon. It has two points and a lot of, never mind, I'm not going to finish that. So, so a two-point sermon. There's two ways to save the fatherless. The first way to save the fatherless is by seeing the fatherless. We just have to recognize that they are here in our midst, maybe in our church, likely in our church, for sure in our community, for sure in the world, but we just have to have eyes that are open. It's part of being the people of God. Seeing the fatherless and then seeing the father because we're not into moralism. To save the fatherless, we must see them and we must see the father. So the first point, seeing the fatherless. Who are the fatherless? The dictionary of biblical imagery says that fatherless are me- the fatherless are mentioned over 40 times in the scriptures, and they're usually referred to as orphans. The reason for that is because if there was no father in the scene, in this patriarchal society, you have a woman who's destitute and a child who's destitute. So you often see them in the scriptures together, the fatherless and the widows, because those two, when there was no father on the scene, were rendered extremely, extremely vulnerable. I think it's interesting, too, if you look at the prophetic record in the scriptures, you'll see that often when the prophets are calling out Israel and saying, Israel, you've forgotten to obey the one who loves you, the one who's provided for you. Do you know what the prophets are saying? Often, matter of fact, for sure, in the book of Malachi, they're saying, Israel, the Lord will judge you. Please turn. Remember the fatherless. I'm looking into the community of God's people, the beacon of God's community, what heaven's supposed to look like on earth, and you have fatherless running through the streets, neglected. You will be judged. Please turn. Turn and show love to the fatherless, just like God has loved you when you were like a fatherless community living in slavery. We can recognize the fatherless when we look around. Here's, here's some ways that we can see them. By their over, overcompensating tendencies, their idolatry, always hungry but never full. They try to hide that they're vulnerable and are unprotected and insecure. I know this from experience. Let me give you a vision of it. It's like eating without teeth. 
It's like having a brand new MacBook with no motherboard. Looks so good on the outside, looks like everything's okay, but really, there's something missing. It's like getting an invitation to somewhere really cool, but you don't have the clothes to wear. It's like seeing your friend playing catch with his dad, but knowing that your mother can't throw a football. It's like eating government cheese. It's like going to the checkout lane and using paper monopoly-looking money to buy your groceries. Food stamps. It's like having a last name with very little meaning attached. Nicholas Winton was a 28-year-old stockbroker. And he was planning a trip a skiing trip to the Swiss Alps. While he's packing his bags, his, his luggage, he gets a phone call from a friend. And his friend in Prague says, Hey, Nicholas, do you have a minute? I could really use some help. You see, there's a problem going on in Germany right now. Something called the Holocaust. Husbands and wives are being carted off and sent to these concentration camps. And there's hundreds, thousands, of children who are being rendered helpless. They're becoming orphans as we speak right now. Nicholas said to his friend, I'll be there immediately. Went, met his friend in Prague and single-handedly wrote down some documentation and was able to create a plan in which these children were taken to England and rescued from the Holocaust. I believe he saved over 600 children he died, I think, just two years ago at like 106 years old. It wasn't until 50 years later that it was even discovered that he did this by his wife. She was up in the attic looking around, and she found documentation that he had saved 669 children from the Holocaust. N Nicholas knew how to see the fatherless. He could have seen the Swiss Alps, but he decided, I'm going to see the fatherless instead. I'm going to set my luxury aside, and I'm going to make some time for the fatherless. What an opportunity to see the heart of God, to see how he sees, that he could set these things aside for the sake of the most vulnerable in his country. Deuteronomy 14, 28 through 29 actually has an application that I think that we could think about here in our church and our, um, our society in America. And it was actually in the law that every three years, money, all the tithe money would be set aside to care for those such as the fatherless. So all of their tithes on every third year would go to the fatherless. It was built in to the society. It was built into God's people's community. So this isn't just a humanitarian effort. This is God's way. This is God's heart. If we want to find out where God's heart is, we need to look at the fatherless. Are we allowing ourselves to be inconvenienced? How can we begin to see the fatherless? For one, we could ask our pastor, are there any fatherless in this church that I could help out in the community? Maybe just looking around your neighborhood and seeing, I, I notice that that woman and her child are going in their home every day, and I don't 
I don't think there's a father there. Maybe I can ask them. Maybe I can secretly give them a gift. Once again, I, I want to remind you, look into the black community. It's an epidemic there. How can you serve the black community? How can you serve the fatherless there? So in order to save the fatherless, we must see them first. Because God has a heart for the oppressed, we must see the fatherless, but we also must see the, see the father, lest this become an exercise in moralism. We know that seeing the fatherless won't save anyone. Knowing that Christ loves you, knowing that Christ has adopted you, saves you. It's not put the cart before the horse. But then how do we act as people who have been rescued, orphans who have been adopted? Do we ignore the other orphans? Or do we attune our hearts and our eyes to what God is looking at? So we must see the Father if we want to save the fatherless. But there's a, there's a little bit of complexity here because most of us don't have this amazing picture of what a father is like. Why is that? Because we've had fathers. And it's, it's funny, it's kind of ironic. If you look through the scriptures, you actually don't see one perfect example of a father throughout all the scriptures when it comes to human beings. You look at all the patriarchs and they failed terribly. Abraham was a coward. David had multiple wives. His children were killing each other and all kind of brokenness was happening in David's family. Anywhere you look in the scriptures, there's not one example. I've, I've searched this out, and there's not one example of a perfect father. So it's really difficult. We have to adjust and tune our eyes to see what the father actually looks like. This is a, this is a rare thing to see, a, a perfect picture of a father. We look at Psalm 68, and it says here in verse 5, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. What is his holy habitation? That's where God lives. That's where he dwells. That's where he does life. So try to picture with me, God has this mansion. There's a couple Range Rovers in the front parking lot. Got a portion in the garage. He has leather couches imported from Italy. He has six different remote controls, one for the TV, one for the shades, one for the kitchen sink, one for, I mean, he has, a, he has a remote control for everything. But when God's sitting back on his imported leather couch, what is he thinking about? Where is his heart at? In that beautiful abode, in his heavenly dwelling, with all the comforts that anyone could ever want, and that we're all destined for, he's thinking about the fatherless. You see, his comforts don't insulate him. Matter of fact, they serve justice. He uses his comforts to bring hope to the fatherless. Now, I have an example. There was a man in my life who had a huge impact on my upbringing, and his name was Mr. Nizzi, and he was such a picture of the father for me for a season in my life. And this man was just, he was so cool. I mean, I was in a rough place. I was 13 years old. I was angry. I was punching holes in the wall. I was getting kicked out of school. I was fighting fighting, and uh, this man came right on time, and Mr. Nizia uh, 
Mr. Nizzi was cool. He was, uh, he was from Iowa. He was a Golden Gloves boxing champion from Iowa. He was a black belt in karate, and he was a football scholarship to the University of Illinois. And this man was a family man. He took me under his wing, cared for me, nurtured me. But one day in particular stands out to me. I was working with him. He taught me a lot of construction and handiwork. I was in the garage with him, and I grabbed this propane tank and accidentally dropped it, and it hit my big toe and splattered. I mean, it was nasty. But Mr. Nizzy, this tough guy, this black belt, golden gloves boxing champion, swooped me up, brought me on his couch, and basically put like an apron on himself and served me for the rest of the evening. He was bringing food to me, drinks to me, covered me up with a blanket, propped my feet up, and became a servant to me. And this just befuddled my, my mind as a young man who grew up without a dad. This, this tough guy, this guy who, we had, I mean, we had videos of him in, in his, in his uh, martial arts, and he just would knock people out. But this man had an apron on, and he was just putting my feet up and serving me food and just, just treating me like I was a prince and like he was the servant. What a beautiful picture of the Father. The hymnist says that he's merciful and mighty. He's not just mighty. He's not just merciful. He's merciful and mighty. He's a warrior who sees children. A warrior who's strong and tender. He's a warrior with a paternal bent. I think some people think fatherliness, being a father is kind of feministic in the worst sense of the word. It's feminizing to care for children. Isn't that the women's stuff? Isn't that a women, women's department? Women change diapers. Women care for children. Women cook meals. But that's not what we see in the scriptures when we look at God. We see God who is very attuned to children. It's all through the law. It's through the prophets. It's through the historical writings. It's in the gospels. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Yeah, I'm the savior of the world, but I have time for them. It's not feminine to care for children. It's actually very godlike. It's very masculine. And God is calling us to that. He's a warrior who fights and holds, who cuts throats and kisses foreheads, who breaks bones and heals scraped knees. He's tender. He's merciful and mighty. You know, I think growing up, I always thought that, uh, I always thought that I really didn't belong. And a lot of my anger stems from the fact that I felt overlooked. Like I wasn't really significant. And if someone ignored me, I could, that was like a trigger. And that would bring out the anger when I would punch walls and do different things like that. And I looked at my story and I thought, you know, I wasn't even supposed to be here. And there was no one who was teaching me and disciplining me and guiding me. If I wanted to quit my basketball team, I slammed my locker and said, I quit. My coach said, you're not quitting. I said, yes, I am. And no one enforced that. There was no fatherly figure to come in and say, I love you. You're not going to quit. But do you know what I've been starting to realize when I look at the story of my life and I look at the story of God's faithfulness? that there has always been a father involved. God chose for me to be conceived. 
He chose for me to exist. And do you know what? My, some of you know this, some of you don't. But my mother moved to Africa shortly after I was born, and I lived in Lagos, Nigeria as a toddler. And there with an unsaved mother, living halfway across the world in a, in a densely populated country, the Lord sought after me. He was a father to me. He sent a missionary organization called the Lagos. There was a boat. My mom was on the town one day, and she see this, sees this boat, and it says, Floating Library. And she goes aboard the floating library, and guess what it is? It's missionaries. And she receives the gospel, and God used that to father me. She moved back to her native Omaha, Nebraska, and I was raised in the church, and I was introduced to Mr. Nizzi, and I was given a godly wife and a godly father-in-law. You know, God has a, an amazing heavenly dwelling when he scans that heavenly dwelling, he sees all the value of all the things in there, the couches, the furniture. But there's one thing his eyes set on, and it was his son. He said, this is the most prized possession I have. This is the most valuable thing I have in my house. And he said, son, come here. I need to talk to you. And his son came up, and he said, yes, father. He said, I want you to go. I want you to go on the earth. I want you to walk with men, and I want you to bring back for me more sons and more daughters. Find the orphans. Find the fatherless. Find the oppressed. Find the widows. Find who will ever come and invite them to come live with me because I want them. And his son said, yes, Father, I'll do that. What, do I, what else do I need to do? And he says, I need you to give your life because the penalty for sin is death and every single one of them has sinned. And the son said, I will do it. And Jesus Christ came to life and he lived a perfect, came to earth and lived a perfect life. And he stretched out his arms and welcomed brothers and sisters to be adopted by the Father. Let's remember the love of the Father as we go out into our community this week. Let's remember the one who saw us helpless orphans as we live amongst the orphans in Phoenix, Arizona. Heavenly Father, we just ask that your word would penetrate. Every word that was mine, let it go away. Anything from you, I ask that it would stay. Break the stony parts of our heart. I confess, even I have been terrible in walking in your word in these areas. Pray that we'd come away with a sense of your lavish love. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Show us how much you love us, Lord, and let us love the fatherless of our community out of the abundance, the overflow of our comfort, and the love you have given us. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.